Welcome to Israel Week in Review with your host, Ben Ronsman. This program brings you a breakdown of the week's news from Israel. In about 15 minutes per week, you can stay informed about events in Israel and the broader Middle East. We'll also provide you with thoughtful perspectives on regional politics, history, culture, and more, such as this episode. Visit IsraelWeekInReview.com to receive regular updates and hard-hitting content. Israel Week in Review is brought to you by Origin Story Marketing. Search engine optimization is essential in today's business environment. To learn more about how Origin Story Marketing can help customers find your business, visit OriginStoryMarketing.com. Thank you for joining us again for this deep dive in part two on the history of the Maronite Christians of Lebanon. Our previous episode explored the earliest history of this fascinating ethno-religious community. This episode will cover the period of the Byzantine Empire, through the Arab conquests, on into the Crusades, and finishing at the end of the Ottoman Empire. In part one, we discuss the origins of the founder of Maronite Christianity, St. Maron. The 4th century Syriac monk and hermit was a close associate of St. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers. St. Maron developed a spiritual and ascetic form of Christianity that he taught in what is today Syria and Lebanon. The movement that he founded, named in his honor, is closely tied to the history of Lebanon. At Lebanon is where the movement's center of gravity remains. There are smaller communities of Maronites in Syria, Cyprus, Jordan, and Israel as well. Of course, the famed Lebanese diaspora has spread Maronite communities around the globe. Two-thirds of Maronite Christians live outside the Middle East, particularly in Latin America, the United States, Canada, France, Australia, and beyond. The nation of Lebanon takes its name from its most prominent mountain, Mount Lebanon, or Jabal Labnun in Arabic. It reaches heights in excess of 10,000 feet. This means that snow remains at its highest elevations year-round. The Maronite Church began to take root on the northern slopes of this beautiful but forbidding mountain in the 4th century. There, the movement began to slowly convert the predominantly Canaanite pagan inhabitants of the region. Because the Maronite Church truly originates at the dawn of the Christian movement, it was involved in some of the earliest Christological controversies. Some of these controversies seem arcane and perhaps even irrelevant today, even to committed Christian believers. The amount of ink and blood spilled over seemingly minor theological points is bewildering to those of us who aren't historians of Christian theology. I suspect that even amongst theologians, some of these distinctions aren't entirely clear. Nonetheless, these controversies played an important role in the early history of Christianity. Different groups held different ideas about the divinity of Jesus and the nature of the Trinity. Byzantine Christian rulers, theologians, and prelates with differing opinions would routinely declare one or another of these beliefs heresies. At this time, there were a variety of Christian beliefs on offer, and the Byzantines sought to unify and systematize belief throughout their empire. Sometimes these beliefs were dramatically different from what we consider Orthodox Christian belief today. Heresies such as Arianism, Marcionism, and even Manichaeism at one time held sway over large parts of the population and were very difficult to suppress. However, some theological disputations seem to hinge on little more than semantic differences. As a non-Christian, I am often baffled by these Christian controversies. The Council of Chalcedon was an early ecumenical council convoked by the Byzantine Empire in the 4th century. It was an early attempt to bring theological uniformity to Christianity. The Council's Creed created a theological rift that is arguably the first major Christian schism. These theological disputes are difficult to understand, but here's my best shot. From what I can gather, the Council of Chalcedon held that Jesus Christ contains within him two natures, both divine and human, in one essence. Non-Chalcedonian Christians hold that Jesus, the incarnate Word, 
or logos, is both fully divine and fully human in one physis, or nature. You got that? At the risk of alienating my Christian listeners, I can only conclude that this theological controversy may have really been a proxy battle for leadership and authority within the early church. In modern times, both Chalcedonian and non-Chalcedonian Christians have issued joint declarations downplaying their theological differences and stressing their shared Christian heritage. What's important to remember for our purposes today is that the Chalcedonian Christians include the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Churches, and most Protestant churches. Church histories record that the Maronites were solidly in the Chalcedonian camp. Notably, the Oriental Orthodox churches were staunchly anti-Chalcedonian. Today, the Coptic Church is the oldest non-Chalcedonian grouping with 10 million followers, mostly in Egypt. The Copts are led by their own pope, who is the spiritual authority for the world's Oriental Orthodox churches. The Ethiopian Orthodox and Eritrean Orthodox churches are considered daughter churches in union with the Coptic Church. Armenian Apostolic and Syriac churches are also non-Chalcedonian. Together, these churches count for nearly 60 million adherents. The reason for this excursus into Christian theology is not merely pedantic. The Maronite adherence to Chalcedonian Christianity gave the Lebanese church a Western orientation that distinguishes it from other Eastern churches. Of course, the Maronites retain this Western orientation until today. As many of you know, they're fully in communion with the Pope and Catholic Church in Rome. During the early centuries of Christianity, the Maronites were often at odds with other Christians of the region. While the Maronites of Mount Lebanon had the official support of the Byzantine Empire, there was hostility between the Maronites and other Christians in the region, particularly non-Chalcedonians. It seems that taking refuge on Mount Lebanon is an idea that predates the Islamic invasions of the 7th century. Now, there are moments in history that are considered axial events, inflection points, where culture shifts abruptly and history begins to move in a different direction. The advent of Islam and the Islamic conquest of the region were certainly such a moment. Arab armies swept out of Arabia in the early 7th century after the death of Muhammad and won a decisive battle at Yarmouk. This site is just east of the Sea of Galilee, at what is today the border of Syria, Jordan, and Israel. Before this time, the Byzantines were hardly concerned with the nomadic peoples of Arabia. Their seemingly eternal enemy was the Persian Empire to the east. Shockingly, the Arabs, a ragtag group of nomadic raiders, had recently unified behind a new prophet who brought forth a new dispensation. The Arabs defeated the mighty Byzantine Empire and consolidated their control of today's Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Jordan in 638. The Byzantine Empire would remain on the defensive for the rest of its history. That other global empire, the mighty Persians, were completely defeated a few years after that. A new era and a new world historical civilization had arisen. The Islamic era had begun. The Maronite community remained somewhat resistant to the Islamic invaders. The desert warriors were not accustomed to alpine warfare. Like many invaders before and since, they remained hesitant to assault the opposing mountain, where Maronite villagers could fight a war of attrition and inflict punishment on any invading army. While a process of Islamization began to proceed from this point forward, the Maronites held fast to their traditions in their mountain fortress, largely resistant to the inexorable process of conversion that was slowly but steadily making inroads in the region. The Arabs began to call this region Bilad al-Shams. However, the pressures on the Maronite population must have been significant. The Byzantine emperor, Justinian II, offered to evacuate the Maronites of Lebanon elsewhere in his empire. They largely refused. Ironically, the loss of Christian sovereignty to the armies of Islam led to a cultural flowering and a distinctive tradition unique to Christianity. The Christian Patriarchate of Antioch 
remained in a state of disarray due to the Islamic conquests. But in 685, a Syriac monk named John Maron, himself named after the Maronite founder, was elected Patriarch of Antioch in all the East. His appointment was confirmed by the Pope in Rome, and John Maron became the first Maronite Patriarch. The Maronite Church has been led in an unbroken chain of 76 Maronite Patriarchs since. John Maron helped to strengthen the beleaguered Maronites of the mountain. The community would use a tactic that continued, and arguably continues to this very day. This fortress of Christianity would use the region's forbidding topography to its advantage. Conquering the imposing mountain in the face of irregular resistance was unattractive to most conquerors then as now. John Maron led his community through the difficult times when the Islamic Umayyad Empire conquered the entire region. This second Islamic caliphate had already conquered Damascus to the east and made it their capital. However, they had to contend with internal conflict of their own. It was at this time that the famed Sunni Shiite schism came into the light of history. The Maronites would use this internal Islamic conflict to their advantage. The Umayyads were far more concerned with the threat to their rule posed by the Shia. They decided to provide the Maronites with an unusual degree of autonomy. In exchange for their loyalty and the regular payment of taxes, the Christians were considered people of the book after all, Al-Al-Kitab, a designation given to the two divinely inspired religions that preceded Islam, Christianity and Judaism. Maronites were permitted to practice their religion and run their own affairs with the payment of the jizya tax levied on non-Muslims. At this early stage in Islamic history, it's actually unclear how strictly the payment of the jizya was enforced. And so, this unique community survived and was able to develop a culture of its own in relative isolation and with a high degree of autonomy. Of course, persecution did sometimes occur. Sometimes the jizya tax was enforced with severity, and there are records of the Maronites being forced to wear distinctive clothing that identified them as non-Muslims. But the Maronites of Mount Lebanon remained a cohesive society that even accepted waves of Maronite immigration from the surrounding region. On the mountain, the community grew and stayed true to its traditions. They continued to speak their ancestral Aramaic language and remained largely inward-looking and suspicious of outsiders. For 400 years, very little is known about Maronite society. The community remained largely forgotten by their Christian co-religionists. That is, until the start of the Crusades. During the First Crusade in 1096, Raymond of Toulouse discovered this community. They became an essential component of the Kingdom of Tripoli, one of the Crusader states created in the East. It was also at this time that another community located in the south of Mount Lebanon became known to the West. That community is known as the Druze. Please pardon me for a brief diversion into the history of the Druze. This fascinating community will certainly be the subject of subsequent deep dives. What is relevant now is that the Druze were a Gnostic outgrowth from Ismaili Shia Islam. Over time, they developed into a distinct ethno-religious community that prohibited conversion from outsiders. They were considered heretics by Orthodox Muslims and were persecuted throughout their history. They chose the southern slopes of Mount Lebanon for the same reasons that the Maronites took refuge on the north side of the mountain. There, the Druze could better defend themselves, and they were given the space to develop a unique culture and religion of their own. Mount Lebanon was looked at with suspicion by Islamic rulers. It was seen as a fortress of heresy, potentially blocking the western approaches to Damascus, the major Muslim-ruled city of the region. The Druze-Maronite relationship has been critically important for the development of modern Lebanon. These two groups have historically made up the majority population of the mountain, the territory that would become the central core of the later republic. These two non-Muslim groups have lived in close proximity to one another since the development of the Druze religion in the 11th century. For most of that history, the relationship between them has been amicable and characterized by mutual respect. 
However, there have been periods of tension and violence between the communities, beginning in the 19th century. Notably, violence broke out between 1840 and 1860, and once again during the Lebanese Civil War that lasted from 1975 to 1990. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the story for next episode. Let's now return to the Crusades. The Crusades were a pivotal time for the Maronites. It was during this time that the Maronites reestablished their ties to the West. The popes reaffirmed their support for the Maronites, and a cultural exchange began to take place between the Maronites and their Western co-religionists. They were recognized as being in full communion with Rome, cementing their Catholic identity. Their patriarchs were invested with authority, and their liturgy, conducted in the ancient Aramaic language, is recognized as fully Catholic in every sense of the word. The Maronites assisted the Crusaders and became an indispensable constituent population of the County of Tripoli, one of the Crusader states founded by the Western powers. In fact, it was the longest lived of all Crusader states, largely because the Maronite population played an important role there. Many European Christians moved to the Crusader states at this time. History refers to them as Franks. As their name suggests, they were largely French. France's cultural ties to the region are deep. The Europeans served as a military elite and nobility in the county of Tripoli. Maronite elites would often serve in a secondary status as lesser nobles. These Maronite elites were referred to as Raïs, a word which is etymologically related to the Hebrew rosh or head. They served as important local chieftains. Lebanese society is still characterized by the rule of local chieftains representing their respective communities. The Maronite peasantry would work the land as serfs in a society modeled on European feudalism. The defeat of the Crusader kingdoms by the Mamluks was a disaster for the Maronites. At this time, the Druze and Maronite communities mutually assisted one another in the face of outside hostility. Both communities maintained strong contacts with the European powers, especially Venice, Genoa, and other Italian city-states. Two clans eventually came to dominate the mountain, the Druze Ma'ans and the Maronite Shihabs. In the early 16th century, they astutely offered their services to the Ottomans. Because of their important assistance in dislodging the Mamluks, the Ottomans gave Mount Lebanon a semi-autonomous status ruled by a prince or emir. These princes initially came from the Druze community. The most prominent Man Druze leader was named Fakhr ad-Din. He ruled the region during the late 16th and early 17th century and is beloved by many modern Lebanese, particularly the Druze and Christians. Many view him as the spiritual founder of Lebanon. He established military, economic, and cultural contacts with the Medicis of Florence. Fakhr ad-Din was seen as a just ruler who treated the various groups in Lebanon equally. His rule spread beyond Mount Lebanon and encompassed most of what is today the Republic of Lebanon. In fact, when the Republic of Lebanon's borders were being discussed, they were largely modeled on the borders of Fakhr ad-Din's principality. His rule was seen as one of the high points of Lebanon's history. Fakhr ad-Din created a polity distinct from that of Greater Syria and established close ties with European powers. He helped to found the enormously important silk industry that remained a mainstay of the Lebanese economy for centuries. However, his increased strength and popularity alarmed the Ottomans, who finally decided to put an end to his independence. He and his family were ultimately defeated and executed. However, Fakhr ad-Din's legacy did not die with him. Many Maronites claim him as one of their own. During his rule, many Maronites, Greek Orthodox, and Greek Catholics migrated to Mount Lebanon. Christians were openly invited to settle in Druze villages. As a young man, Fakhr ad-Din was given refuge by the Maronites. Moreover, he spent many years in exile in Italy, both in Tuscany and Sicily. This has led some Maronites to claim that he converted to Catholicism later in life. While there is very little evidence for this conversion, the legend tells us a great deal about his status within the Maronite community.
After Fakhar ad-Din's rule was crushed, the Druze and the Maronites once again retreated back to the mountain. After some time, a Maronite dynasty named the Shihabs became powerful. They were invested with authority by the Ottomans, who allowed them to use the title of emir, or prince. These emirs of the mountain ruled over the largely Christian and Druze population in a state of general peace and mutual respect until the middle of the 19th century. It was at this time that the peaceful cooperation between Maronites and Druze began to erode, leading to the first instance of violence between these two communities. Many refer to it as the First Lebanese Civil War. This was also the time when European powers once again became increasingly involved in Lebanese affairs. But that is a story for the next episode. The third and final episode of this deep dive on the Maronites of Lebanon will take us from the 19th century to the present day. There, the story of the Maronites and the Druze begin to intersect with that of the state of Israel. Stay tuned. We hope you have enjoyed this program. This has been Ben Ronsman from Israel Week in Review, providing you with a breakdown of the week's news from Israel, as well as thoughtful perspectives on the region's politics, history, culture, and more. Visit IsraelWeekinReview.com in order to receive regular updates and hard-hitting content. Israel Week in Review has been brought to you through the generous support of Origin Story Marketing, helping customers find your business through search engine optimization. To learn more, visit OriginStoryMarketing.com.